Hello, and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Charles Summery Smith is well versed in the making of an art museum. Over the course of his career, he's been director of the National Gallery, director of the National Portrait Gallery, and chief executive of the Royal Academy. He's instigated blockbuster exhibitions, Rubens, Caravaggio, David Hockney, Annie Leibovitz, and he's also overseen major architectural interventions to expand and modernize a museum's offering. In his new book, The Art Museum in Modern Times, Charles looks at 42 museums around the globe to explore the history of museum architecture. From MoMA in New York to Mona in Hobart, Tasmania, Charles examines the motivations of museum donors and directors and the ways in which an architect has channeled those visions and aspirations into a building. Along the way, he traces a profound evolution in how we experience art and what we think an art museum should be. Charles joined me over Zoom to talk about his experiences running a museum, which museum buildings have made the biggest impact on him, and where the art museum might be headed in a post-pandemic world. So welcome, Charles, and thank you so much for joining me today. It's definitely been a very long time since I've been able to set foot in an art museum, so it's a pleasure to speak with you and visit, at least conversationally, some of the most exciting institutions around the world. I'm sure many people tuning in will be familiar with your career and certainly with the leading London museums that you've directed. But perhaps you can tell us briefly how you got into this line of work and where your special interest in museum architecture emerged. Well, I did art history as an undergraduate and then I did a PhD at the Warburg Institute on the architecture of Castle Howard. I mean, I'm unusual as somebody who's been a director of art museums, who was trained essentially as an architectural historian. And then I went to the V&A and I got a very interesting job helping set up a postgraduate course in the history of design at V&A. So again, I had an orientation towards design. But when I applied for the job at the V&A, I also applied for a job as the 18th century curator at the National Portrait Gallery. And so 12 years later, I knew that they were advertising the post of director. And I was just at that stage, I'd been at the V&A for, for longish, and I wanted to do something different. And I applied, not really expecting to be appointed. And what I didn't know is that there were two internal candidates, and half the trustees wanted one, and the other half wanted the other. And somehow they came to a compromise, which was that I would be appointed. And so I arrived, and it was when the lottery started. And so there was a very unique opportunity to rethink and reconfigure the portrait gallery, which wouldn't be possible now in quite the same way. So we had an architectural competition in 1994. And through that, I became much, much more interested in how architecture shapes the experience of visitors going to museums. Now, the book explores the history, the present and possible futures of the art museum. I'm curious to know what the museum meant in those early stages of your career, if we could 
rewind to day one as director of the National Portrait Gallery. What did you see as the museum's primary function and as your main purpose and responsibility as director? Okay, well, in a way, it's better for me to go back to the V&A because the V&A is going through a reorganisation at the moment and I lived through a reorganisation in the late 1980s and so I've had to... Or, no, I've wanted to follow what's happening there. And it seems to me that they are undergoing some of the pressures which I experienced there, where when I came in, it was very systematic. It was done in such a way that you learnt the history of ceramics from beginning to end. When I went to the portrait gallery, there was still very much that sense. So the historic collection was on the upper two floors and it was arranged chronologically based around an idea that it was a form of public schoolroom. The idea was you went to learn about British history through the medium of portraiture. But the history was at least as important as the character and quality of the portraiture. It never thought of itself, or in my day it didn't think of itself as an art gallery, it thought of itself as a version, a rather idiosyncratic and British version of a history museum. I, I would like to think I was involved in a process of modernisation through introducing much more about contemporary portraiture. We did many more big photographic expressions. In moving the museum into the present, you also oversaw, as we've mentioned, the design and construction of the National Portrait Gallery extension, the Ondaatje Wing. How did that building project reflect your vision for the museum? Yeah, so literally, I arrived in January 1994, and we started planning what we would do. And we came up with a very simple brief, which was, where do we put a cafe? Where do we put a lecture theatre? And how do we encourage people to get to the top floor? Because the most important portraits were on the top floor. And lots of people didn't discover the staircase. So then we had an architectural competition. And it was won by Jeremy Dixon and Edward Jones, who I didn't know a lot about, although they were doing the big Royal Opera House project. And they came up with a very intelligent way of using the backyard. What they did emblematically in architectural terms was to provide a spine to the gallery, which ran alongside the three decks of existing galleries and opened up public access in a public and visible way, so that you have the escalator, which is a visible manifestation of you come in and the main part of the collection is on the top floor, so you get on the escalator. And the, the bit of the project which I'm not sure will survive is that there was very much an idea of having empty, white, daylit space as a contrast to the experience of the much darker and much more intense occupied uh, galleries, so that there was a contrast between pure architecture, empty, empty space, and the intensity of going through the collection. In writing this book, I'd imagine that you're able to look back and, and situate that project at the National Portrait Gallery in a wider context of museum building and practice. And I wonder how you'd characterise the development of the art museum more generally at that time. OK, so I think there was a big change 
in the second half of the 1990s and I trace it through three museums. One is the Guggenheim Bilbao, uh, which was very much seen as different from the conventional museum because Tom Krenz, who ran it, was in a way a 60s hippie. He did an interview which has just been published and he pretty well describes how he spent the 60s and 70s smoking dope and dreaming of doing museums differently. And then, and then he took himself off to uh, do an MBA at Yale and then he got the job uh, as director of the Guggenheim. And he had this idea of franchising the collection and using it internationally. And he was trained as an artist and not as an art historian. And I think that is a significant change because the traditional museum, most museum directors were trained as art historians. And so their attitude towards display was essentially historical. What Tom Krenz felt was that artists now wanted things displayed, not just so that they were one feature or part of a general sequence, but they had much more authority over how things were displayed. And he was of the generation who were interested in land art and things which couldn't be accommodated by museums. So I think he was as very much more significant than I had realised. Then the second person was Nick Sorota. So Tate Modern, certainly in my time, was somewhat different on a huge scale. After all, they chose a building which, in a way, totally dominated the galleries and they used the Turbine Hall as the central part of the experience of the museum in a way which most people, including me, tend to remember what's been done in the Turbine Hall more than we remember what's been done in the galleries. And, and so that's, that's a moment of adjustment. And then before the Museum of Modern Art reopened in 2004, they all went off to a conference in the Hudson Valley uh, at the Rockefeller Mansion. And it's incredibly interesting because you can see how everybody, without exception, wanted to do things differently. I mean, they didn't all want to do them differently in the same way, but architects, curators, museum directors, everybody felt that the moment had come for the Museum of Modern Art to follow a different model from the its traditional linear way of displaying things. So it's definitely a very significant shift, this departure from the linear display, from the singular interpretation, towards something much more exploratory and open to different interpretations. I wondered how repurposed buildings like Tate Modern might particularly contribute to that more multivalent experience of art, in the sense that you know, this is a structure that itself contains a previous history, a former function, a kind of multiple identity, multiple meanings, perhaps. Well, interestingly, I discovered recently, which I hadn't known, and I, I don't remember seeing it, that um, Nitz Rota had on the walls of Tate Modern, the original Tate Modern, Alfred Barr's diagram of 20th century painting. And somebody said to him, look, you can't have that. That's no longer the narrative of the history of art. Get rid of it. And, and he did get rid of it. And then almost immediately, 
To an extent I hadn't realised, the moment Tate Modern opened, they started planning what became the Blavatnik Wing. Uh, the competition was held in 2006, so that although the Blavatnik building only opened, I think, in 2016, it was already being planned, and that was planned in a very different way. Not just because it had to be because of the architecture, but they had the tanks which opened, which were more experiential. And then how far it was because of the available floor plan or how far it was in a way ideological, they decided to plan it so that there isn't a clear organisation, spatial organisation, I think, in the Blavatnik building. The galleries are whatever they are on the third and fourth floor. The staircase is a spiral. And I think if you ask most people what is the layout of the Blavatnik building, they would be slightly hard-pressed. And I think that is very representative of a switch from coherence to exploration. Alongside this really significant development in North American and European museum practice, you also explore in the book a parallel phenomenon on the other side of the world, specifically in Japan, where there was also a real boom in museum architecture in the 80s and 90s, but one in which the tendency was less towards visitor exploration and self-led discovery and learning, and much more about a kind of hushed, pared-down space, a simplicity and serenity, an almost spiritual encounter with art. Can you tell us a little more about that Japanese paradigm? Yes, so very soon after I went to the portrait gallery, indeed, I inherited a project to send the collection to Japan. At that stage, the Japanese newspapers were very keen on bringing exhibitions from collections, both in Britain and, and in America. And it had been negotiated that we would send our collection. In fact, the very first thing I had to do is say, I'm afraid I said that the Japanese couldn't have Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare has since then traveled, but I felt, it was MPG1. It was the first work in the collection, and it's of exceptional rarity, and I didn't want to be the director who uh, was there when Shakespeare disappeared. And I can remember being told, oh, well, they won't take the exhibition, but actually they, they did. And so I went out to Japan, I think still in 1994, and I'd never been. And the exhibition opened in a gallery about 200 miles north of uh, Tokyo. It's a sort of small town, it, somebody said it was like the Swindon of Japan. And in the 80s, because of the prosperity of Japan, every town of whatever size had built a museum. And this museum was very, very beautiful. It had very little in it. It had actually been constructed as a museum of British art, but they only had about nine paintings. And what they'd done is create an environment, an aura and they had a prayer room. And um, I thought it was interesting because it was moving museums diametrically in the opposite direction from the way they were moving in Britain. So in Britain, they were being driven to become more commercial, more like shopping malls, more... Yeah, Disney was sort of used as a model for how the Natural History Museum was expected to develop. And so this idea that 
the whole point of museums was to take people out of their normal everyday environment and give give people an opportunity for what is a version of secular worship, of quiet space, of re- uh, somewhere to reflect, look at art and experience art, but in a meditative way. I, I was influenced by it. And if there's a sort of, I mean, I'm waiting for the moment where people pick up on the fact that, of course, there are lots of museums I could have included and didn't. I included the ones I thought were interesting. And I did include ones which I thought demonstrated this idea which I put in the final section of the search for the sacred. It's a kind of secular sacredness. You touched earlier, Charles, on on the sheer scale and impact of the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern, almost, as you put it, overwhelming the galleries. And if I think of some of the best-known art museums, they often are these bold, spectacular structures, Centre Pompidou, Guggenheim Bilbao, or indeed Guggenheim New York. How do you see the balance between that architectural impact and function? Can a museum building be just too impressive, too consuming of attention, that it distracts from engagement with the collection? So... I've been involved with in discussion about Guggenheim and Bilbao. I suppose because it's at the heart of the book, it is very important. And some people really don't like it for exactly the reason you imply, that they feel it's too much pure architecture. The irony is, actually, Tom Krenz himself insisted, rather to Frank, Frank Gehry's annoyance, of having very conventional galleries inside, which don't relate to the exterior envelope. And from my experience, they have done very good exhibitions. But if you ask most people about the Guggenheim Bilbao, I think it's inescapable that people are transfixed by the quality of the building. And for me, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to be puritanical in the way that a lot of museum people were not merely puritanical, but deeply hostile to the Guggenheim in New York. I mean, for many museum people in the 50s, when it opened, partly because um, Sweeney, the person who had been appointed as director, absolutely loathed everything about the Guggenheim building and thought Frank Lloyd Wright was a total narcissist. Um, and actually the ICOM passed a vote that in future no architect should ever be given as much power over the um, design of a building and that they should always be treated as secondary to the curators and the collection so that it's a touchstone for people. But I suppose because I've always had an interest in the idea of the museum as being about more than just the, the, the collection. Uh, and that was true in a way of what happened at the Portugal in the 90s, partly because that was the brief of the Heritage Lottery Fund. It was to open up democratic access and to allow people to use museums in a rather different and more... I mean, they didn't put it like that, but that, that drive towards um, different usage, uh, more 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 experience, more, you know, having a cafe and so on and so forth, treating it as a day out, uh, which, as I said, I can still remember 
if one said it in those ways in the 90s, most curators would be rather disapproving. And uh, uh, it's possible there are still curators who feel that treating museums in that way is illegitimate. Museum structures in the broadest sense are today under a lot of scrutiny, whether that's for their funding sources, the colonial heritage of their holdings, or for their perpetuation of an exclusionary, predominantly white, Western and male canon. I wondered in what ways you thought museum architecture in particular might help to mediate on these issues and to move institutions forward. So the architect we haven't discussed so far is Peter Sumtor. And Sumtor did the, it was originally called the Dowson Museum of Cologne and then became Columba. And that was for me very important. And it was seen by Michael Govan, who was the director of Dear Beacon. And then he went to the Los Angeles County Museum in 2006 with the idea of using Sumtor to do a new museum. And the new Los Angeles County Museum, which opens, I think, in 2023, will be very emblematic of many of the changes, many of the changes are expressed through Zumtor's architecture. So it moves quite radically away from the idea of big collections organised geographically and historically. The previous LACMA was on different floors and now it's this curious indeterminate structure which crosses the highway and doesn't have a front door. And a lot of the thinking behind it, you can feel, is an expression of change priorities so that it's going to be more global. They'll have South American art on the same level as European art. It's sort of anti the European canon. It will uh, be thematic rather than historical. And it will be very purely experiential. And... I I will be really interested in how it works because it will be a model of all the current trends in which the director and the curators and the architect have worked together to do things differently. What about digital technology? How do you see that being best integrated into museum architecture, into the museum experience? Were there any museums that you've featured in the book that you found to be particularly exciting and progressive and successful in their digital practice? Well, the place I really enjoyed, and I'm incredibly glad I did it, which is this museum Mona in Hobart in Tasmania. Mona is constructed around the idea that the digital supersedes text. There's absolutely no text in the museum so that the experience in the museum is visual and then anything you want to find out you have a handheld device called an O and then that picks up where you are in the museum and you can then dial up information according to whatever level of information you want so there's a curator and then you can get the person who bought the work and then uh, you probably get a sort of educator. You can get different voices, different narratives. And I think that which 
compels the visitor to treat the experience as purely visual, not intellectual, and then to add a layer of intellectualism, if you want, orally. I, I thought that was very, very ingenious. And the other one, which was very much thought about in digital terms, is the Broad in Los Angeles. I think partly because the deputy director who was responsible for thinking about the Broad is himself a big world, uh, figure in the world of digital technology. But in a sort of way, I don't think it changes the experience. I mean, the actual top floor experience of the Broad is not that dissimilar to any other museum. Whereas Mona actually completely radically changes how you use the museum because you, you, you actually spend a lot of time there exploring because it slows up how you go through the museum because you look at things and then you find out about them. We've spoken today at a time of real existential crisis for museums around the globe. It's a time which we've lived even more on screen and also a time marked for many of us, or indeed most of us, by profound yearning for physical encounter, for fellow humans, for spaces beyond our own four walls, and of course with art and culture. If we can look or, or maybe dream beyond lockdowns, how do you see museums emerging from this era-defining experience? Well, I found it really interesting, partly because I delivered the text at the end of March. And then by April, it was already evident that a lot was going to happen, that museums were going to suffer hugely from closure. It didn't seem evident then how long it was going to be or how deep the cost was going to be. And so I have spent a lot of the last year following the discussions and debates now, on the one hand, there are some institutions which are on a trajectory to open in a relatively traditional way. So the idea of the Los Angeles County Museum was generated long before lockdown. And um, there will be plenty of museums and galleries like the National Portrait Gallery, which will reopen in 2023, which aren't influenced by lockdown. I would love to be able to give an answer to what's going to happen in the second part of the next decade, where I suspect there will be lots of people who will have had different ideas about how to do things, which aren't evident yet, but will become evident, because people have had so much time to rethink how things should be done differently. The truth is that for a decade, people aren't going to undertake big new building projects. They will probably have to be more creative and more inventive about how they use their own collections. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be a good thing that instead of relying on foreign tourists, instead of relying on big exhibitions, you kind of explore and experiment how you can use in a creative and inventive way what you've already got. Inventive, creative and experimental sounds promising. Uh, thank you very much for that welcome endnote of optimism. And thank you, Charles, for the really great conversation. It's been fascinating and a privilege to hear more about your own experiences on the ground, heading up leading London museums 
and your impressions of art museum design around the world over the last century and into the future. So thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 